is Dr. Alex Avila with Love University, and we're back. I'm an author, psychologist, and speaker. Every week we talk about how to love ourselves, others, and higher nature, how to improve our finances, career, relationships, spirituality. And we're very fortunate today to have a very esteemed guest come back on the show, Neil Donald Walsh, who is considered a modern-day spiritual messenger. He's a best-selling author of the Conversations with God series, seven books, actually nine books, and he's written 37 total books. The New York Times bestseller list favorite. Uh, the first book was on the Times list for over two and a half years. He also has projects of the CWG Foundation and also the Global Conversation. And his mission is to spread a new understanding of life and God to humanity so they can live with peace, harmony, and love. Welcome, Neil, to the show again. Thank you, Alex. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. Now, last time we had you, actually before all this happened, before the pandemic, and since then you've published a new book. It's called The God Solution, which is a lovely book. I've been reading it. God is Pure Love. And I'm kind of curious, how do you write so many books? You've written 37 books. You're very prolific. Now, I know the first one is God channeled through you with Conversations with God. Is this the same way that it happens to you? How do you write so many books? Let me back up if I might, Alex. I don't believe, nor have I ever said, that God channeled anything through me. In fact, I've avoided even using the term God channeled because I don't want anyone to think that I imagine that uh, the divine being is channeling, you know, information through me in the classic sense of the meaning of the word channeling. So what I'm going to say is I'm an inspired writer. I think like many, many, many inspired writers, on, by the way, on a variety of topics, whether we're talking about uh, Thomas Jefferson being inspired to write the American Declaration of Independence, or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. being inspired to write his I Have a Dream speech, or many, many people through the centuries who have been inspired, I believe, by the higher power, what I call God, to bring to the world their particular form of contribution. Could be Mozart's music, could be Michelangelo's incredible breathtaking art, uh, or it could be something as simple and as humble as a book called Conversations with God. So without making an issue of it, no, I'm not a channeler. I don't channel God. Yes, but you're inspired. Uh, you're inspired by God. And it, it's yeah, and 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 so are we all. The the, the yes. point of the book, the, the main point of the Conversations with God books, is that everyone is having conversations with God all the time. Yes. We're simply calling it something else. We're calling it an epiphany or a moment of you know, inspiration or a bright idea or, or whatever words we want to use yes. so we can avoid being judged by others. Oh, he, she thinks that God is talking to her. You know, so we, we try to avoid tell, saying that, you know, I was inspired by God. You know, but in fact, uh, I think that's what's happening. I think there is a source of wisdom and clarity, Alex, that lives inside of all of us yes. th that I call God. And yes, you're right. The new book is called The God Solution, yes. which brings up an interesting uh, topic. But to answer your question first, how do I write so many books? You know, I have a, an impulse in me that says it's important to place the following message into the world. And you know what? Honestly, I don't even know what the message is until I get to the keyboard. And then I get to the keyboard and I just write literally what comes to me. I see. And, Some and writers say that um, they need to have inspiration, but I always think that you need to move the inspiration to you by working toward it. Like you have a discipline. Well, you know, I don't, <laughs> discipline is a word I can't even spell, much less it relate to. I don't think that I have much discipline in my life. I think I just, I wind up getting up in the morning, 
and it, it, on those mornings when I have that impulse, and I think, gosh, you know, something really needs to be said here. So I open the computer, get to the keyboard, and I see what, as I said, what comes through, and what came through in this uh, instance is an entire book. Uh, it's a very short book. You can read it, you know, in a weekend. It's very quick to read, but it's called The God Solution, and I think it contains powerful, powerful information yeah, I mean, for humanity. It does. You have some very interesting concepts. You talk about idea heroes, people that have a revolutionary way of looking at everything in a different way. And you said, uh, imagine if you created your own religion and you define God in a new way. And you say God as pure love, which is in many forms we talk about agape, unconditional love, vatki, compassion, karuna, compassion, vatki, devotion. In psychology, we call it unconditional positive regard. Carl Rogers talked about empathy and those kind of things. Loving kindness in the Buddhist tradition, where you basically extend loving energy to yourself and then other people and then higher. All these kind of things are very beautiful. But I'm kind of wondering, today you were kind of cracking a couple of jokes earlier. Is God funny, would you say? I don't think there's any question uh, that, that God, you know, as I was, I was told in uh, conversations with God, the fact of the matter is, my, my understanding is that, uh, and I, I was told in, in conversations with God, I, God, God said to me, I invented humor. Of course I'm funny. I invented humor. So, and there's, there's nothing that is part of the life experience that it did not originate right. with God in some form. You know, the man, the book, The God Solution, starts off with what I thought was an intriguing question. If there really is a God, why is the world the way it is? If there really is a God, what's the point of having a God? What's the point of having a higher power if the world is a complete mess? Right. You said that 1.7 billion people have no water, 2.6 billion have no toilets. Every 40 seconds there's a suicide. And that's even before the pandemic, you know, which is obviously a lot of people suffering. So why is that? Why do people suffer? Or, you know, the phrase, why do bad things happen to good people? Rabbi Kushner wrote about this in his, his book. Uh, how do you see that in terms of the pure love? I think the issue is that we have misunderstood who and what God is, we have, and that's why the world is the way it is. Because we think, many people, not a small number of people, but billions of people think, okay, if there is a God, then God should be intervening in our lives. God should be taking care of us, both individually and collectively. God should be, in a sense, having his way with us. That is, all things are happening according to God's will. That is the belief of billions and billions of people. So I think that the challenge here, Alex, is that in my view, uh, most of the world's people misunderstand who and what God is. And um, so the, the book directs its attention to that question, who and what is God and what does God want from us and what is God's role in our lives? And what the book makes the point that God's role is not to control our lives, not to create the events of our lives or to uncreate them, not to solve our problems or, or to produce certain circumstances or situations in life. That's not God's role. God's role is simply to empower us all humanity, and for that matter, every sentient being in the universe, if you please, God's role is to empower sentient beings everywhere to create what it is they wish to experience. Yes. And that's what's happening here on Earth. That is, the human species is creating what it wishes or chooses to experience. Now, you might say, well, we didn't choose to experience the, the coronavirus, except that 50 years ago, we were told that something like this could very likely and would very likely happen if we didn't take certain steps and move in certain directions, and we chose not to do so. 
We chose to ignore all of the warnings. And there are not just verbal warnings, many of us, a whole slew of books, four or five different books were printed talking about what's going to happen if we are not careful with regard to viruses. And we ignored that completely. Just as today, we are by and large ignoring the warnings of everyone about the climate crisis and the climate problem and the environmental challenge that we're facing on the earth today. We are either poo-pooing it or saying it's overstated or in the words of some people that it's fake news and it's not really happening. And then in about 25 or 30 more years, if, if we're lucky, if we can get that far into it, we're going to sit up and say, now look, well, you know, remember what a fine mess you've gotten us into, Holly. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, from 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 uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy. You said something that's very profound, but I think it could be controversial for some people with a certain background, religiously and all that. Is that God doesn't really invest themselves in the day to day? You're saying as much in terms of controlling every little detail. No, it's not God's job to do that. God's job, God's desire, God's great joy, yes. is great to job. give us the power as a species to produce and create our own reality. Because right. God would have us experience who we really are, which is the Creator. But Alex, most people agree in all the world's religions on at least one thing. They would all say, well, okay, we can agree on one item. God is the creator. And what God wants us to do, every sentient being in the cosmos, is to experience its divinity by becoming equally the creator of our own collective reality. Right. And so God has imbued with all sentient beings in the cosmos and within the human race the ability to create our own reality. That's exactly what we're doing right now. I'll give you a perfect example. We're underground testing nuclear weapons. We, we continue to blow up the underground of the Earth time and time again with underground nuclear tests. Then we wonder why the plates under the Earth are separating and why we're having earthquakes and why we're having tidal waves and why we're seeing geophysical phenomena that are detrimental to our way of life. And we think there's no connection. Oh, Neil, stop it. There's no connection between our underground nuclear tests that blow up huge holes in the core of the Earth. There's no connection between that uh, and the challenges we're facing on the surface of the Earth. You see, people like to take the following situation, the following position. The position of most people is, Neil, stop it. We are not responsible for any of it. Right. We're we, not doing any of it. Yes. It's all, and if, oh, if we just pray hard enough, God will, will turn everything around. And God is saying, you know what? Your will for you is my will for you. If you don't want to turn it around, then it will not be turned around because I am empowering you. You talk about freedom of choice. You know, a lot of pastors talk about that humans have freedom of choice to choose, uh, you know, to believe or not believe. But also, you're saying on a collective level, the idea of you know society, you know, chooses. You like said the virus; they may have been warned about it. We also say on an individualized level, you can choose your emotional reaction to external events. You have a great anecdote. We're talking about your friend Byron Katie, the self-help author who's very successful, and you said she was held at gunpoint. And the, the robber said, uh, you know, give me everything, I'll kill you. And she said to him, um, wait a minute, sweetie, if you do that, you're going to make a mess of things. So that moment, instead of fear, she chose almost an empathy uh, to understand, you know, this would cause a lot of troubles for that guy. So that's a very important uh, thread I see in your work, is that we humans can choose the emotion. Uh, and also, you talk about pure love as God's emotion, that we can also choose that. So how does that work? How do we upgrade our emotion? For example, we're, we're cut off on the road and we're getting angry by someone. Are we going to react with anger 
Or can we react with empathy? You know, maybe they're having a hard day at the job or maybe they broke up with their spouse or something. So how do we get or to that maybe point? they're on their way to the hospital for a dying parent. Exactly. But how do we get that? Because, you know, our, our primitive brain reacts quickly, you know, with anger or with uh, these kind of reactions sometimes. By choosing yeah. to, Alex, by making a conscious choice, by saying, you know what, from now on, I'm not going to respond to my most primitive, my most basic Amygdala. impulses. Yeah. I, I have chosen to become a demonstration of divinity to the degree that I'm humanly uh, capable of doing so, which is, by the way, a much higher level than most of us imagine. Right. And so I'm going to, and here's the trick that I use. I've, there are a number of questions that I ask myself One, in moments like that, being cut off on the highway or whatever unpleasantry yes. may be visiting me in my life. I will ask myself a, a question. How would God have responded to this if I really was an aspect of divinity? Pure love, as you call it. Yeah, if I was pure love, if we, if we define God as pure love, and if we accept that as our definition of God, and if we decide that's the model that I'm now going to use with which to demonstrate my behavior, how would I react right now to this guy cutting me off uh, in traffic? Right. Or whatever else is happening well, in my life. Conscious awareness. Like At the very moment, you have to be aware of this the higher uh, pure love is you're saying. Well, but, but if you make a lifelong commitment, so you, it, it's a moment-to-moment -moment thing at the beginning. It starts to be a moment-to-moment -moment thing. But after a while, you know, people like the Dalai Lama, as an example, or the great Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, yes. and other people like that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh doesn't sit there and think about it moment-to-moment. -moment. He's adopted a way of being in the world. Right. And I, I, I promise you, you can cut him off in traffic a hundred times a week. <laughs> and he doesn't have to think about, gee, you know, should I react positively yeah. or negatively to it? It's not part of his thinking right. anymore. You, told because, me you don't like this, the word discipline, but isn't that discipline? I mean, these monks, they meditate, they take hours of training every day. Isn't that an important factor to discipline? It's one way of doing it, uh, uh, Alex, but it, it doesn't require that. It doesn't take months and months and months of training and hours and hours and hours of meditation. I'm here to tell you that my experience has been and the information I've been given is that we can also make such a decision at the snap of a finger. We can decide, you know what, from now on, this is how I am going to be. I am going to be the expression, the source, the experience, and the projection of pure love in the universe, regardless of what's going on around me. And if we decide to do that and make a conscious choice to do that and make a real commitment to do that, wow, watch your life change. And if you did it for 90 days, your life will never again be the same. People are going to come up to you out of the blue, friends who know you, members of your family, they're going to say, what are you on? What are you smoking? What's going on? Something what natural. are you taking? Because, because you've changed. You've changed dramatically. What has happened to you? And you will say to them, you know what? I've chosen to invoke the God's solution. Hmm. It's powerful. So it's a sartori. It's a gestalt realization that come, can come to you. Now, I, I like this about what you're writing, Neil, is that you apply both at a God level and a human level. So, you know, they say that perfect love cast uh, out fear. And uh, loving energy without expectation is the way we talk about it at Love University is an extremely powerful force. But then you say that on a human level, this uh, this pure love is expressed energy that makes you happy and is intended to make the other person happy. Although they may not be happy. Maybe they don't like your smile and they turn away, but you don't take it personally, right? You still extend the loving energy no matter what. So I think of like the sun. The sun shines on all. 
So people who don't like the sun, they cover it up with an umbrella. Uh, other people love the sun, but the sun doesn't take it personal. It doesn't get mad or anything. It keeps shining the lovely energy. So tell me about how that works. Let's say well, everything has to do with the intent, Alex. It's about the original intent as you project the energy. If if you project energy that you call love, yes. but it intends in some way, you know, to maybe hurt or damage or injure or punish another person. Hmm. You know, let, let me give you a perfect example. Hmm. You know, uh, there was an old saying when I was a kid that that we would we would hear that parents would say to their children when they were giving their children a little spanking this hurts me more than it hurts you mm. you know which is uh, a lot of baloney mm. pure love would never would never use love as an excuse yes. or even as a reason to intentionally and deliberately mm. impose harm or injury on another mm. but we believe in a god who does exactly that I got to tell you that billions of people believe in a God who says, I'm going to send you to hell and everlasting damnation, not for a little while, not till you get over it, not till you pay for your sins. You will be suffering unbelievable torture for the rest of eternity because I love you so much. I'm doing it out of love. I'm doing it out of love. It's, it's, it's what I call God's justice. And what did you do wrong to deserve an eternity of torture? What did you do that was so bad? Um, let's see. You joined the wrong religion. Mm. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, there's only one religion that you should have joined. And you were a kind person, a caring person, a compassionate, loving person. You were even a forgiving person, a generous person. You were all the things that a really wonderful person we would want them to be. You were all of those things. But... You were raised in a culture that didn't believe in the right religion. So I'm sorry, I got to send you to hell for the rest of eternity. Hmm. Yeah, it's, what? You know, I, this is the God in, in whom we believe. And these are the behaviors, by the way, that we are imitating because we use God. When I say we, I mean the largest number of people on the earth. The largest number of, uh, of human beings imitate the behaviors of the God in whom they believe. And so we take that as the model for our own behaviors and we do incredible things. For instance, we actually kill people on this planet in the name of the state, in the name of government, in order to teach people that killing people is not okay. We use violence to end violence. We use anger to bring an end to anger. We use killing to bring an end to killing, completely ignoring the clear advice of one of the greatest minds among us, Albert Einstein, who said, you cannot solve any problem using the same energy that created it. Now, Dale, I want to ask you something. Now, this is really fascinating, the idea of pure love, you know, God giving this unconditional love. And you're saying the, you know, thing about punishing and all that. No, no, see, see, sorry for the interruption, but one last statement. You're perfectly correct. God would never use love as a reason to send you or anyone else to everlasting punishment and everlasting damnation. So the question is, is it possible that we have misunderstood God completely and that God needs and demands nothing from human that's, beings? That's the point I'm getting to, because... Uh, does God expect anything from us? 
No, say no. Why? Why would God? And if you look at, I mean, a lot of the religion, obviously, the Ten Commandments. You look at Sharia. Uh, you look at, you know, say, you know, don't worship, um, I guess, a false idol. You know, the jealous God, as they say. And even in the Kabbalah, God is jealous. You know, God has to be restored to wholeness uh, through human uh, human efforts. So, I mean, a lot of these religions or your past do talk about God uh, as needing something from us. Uh, or expecting something, but you're, you're saying demanding something, not just expecting something, demanding right. or else. Yes, exactly. So, what do you think? But should people have certain moral guidelines that you know maybe are spiritually based that they should follow, like do not steal, do not kill? Uh, you know, like no. God has that as as their guideline. No, 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 no. It's not about moral guidelines. God, God made it very clear to me in the conversations with God books in the dialogue. She said very clearly. There's no such thing as the Ten Commandments, but there are the Ten Commitments. And you guys turn them into commandments, but these are my commitments. Moses went to the mountaintop and said, look, my people are down there on the bottom of the hill and they're, they're wanting to know, how can they know that they're on the right path? How can they know that they're on the pathway to divine action, to being even just a simple good person? How do, how do they, what are the guidelines that would let them know if they're being a good person and they're on the path to divinity? And God said, all right, take this down. In fact, don't even bother taking it down. I'll chisel it in stone and you can have the tablets. Hmm. Here are the tablets. You will know that you're on the pathway to divinity because when you're on that path, you shall honor your mother and your father. You won't lie. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. These are things you shall not do. You won't do them because you're on the right path. And these are the ways that you will know that you're on the right path. But these are not commandments. These are my commitments. These are the 10 commitments. I commit to you that when you're on the right path, you will not do these things. Right. And, and if you catch yourself doing these things, it's because, oh, I, I made a wrong turn somewhere. Right. So with pure love, you're saying these things flow naturally from you. As opposed to you haven't been to told, you know, don't do these things. When you love, you're not going to kill or hurt or do these things. Uh, you're saying. Now, the, the other thing is, you know, we know that there's a lot of benefits from what we call compassionate love. Uh, physical benefits, reduce inflammation. They've actually done studies. Uh, increase longevity. People that are generous and loving to others. And also, uh, you enlarge your perspective. It's no longer about poor me. It's about, you know, I'm blessed, you know, and I'm, I'm united with other people. So on a human perspective, there's a lot of you know great benefits to you know, this uh, karuna, this compassion, this loving energy you're talking about without expectation. But here's a question, though. I can see that you can have this, uh, you know, parent to child, right? Your child is under a car. People, you know, rescue, do whatever they can. Uh, actually, among animals, I think you like animals, you know, say dogs, for example. You see that kind of uh, unconditional love. I had a friend of mine who recently her 15-year-old dog was getting old and, and very sick. Uh, went to the vet a lot, and then on the way to the vet, the dog was couldn't breathe. And she says, I release you now to God, to, to Jesus, you know, you served me well. And, you know, she was tearful. And it was, a, you know, very heartbreaking, but, you know, she experienced the love she had for the animal, and the animal toward her. But among adult human relationships, it's conditional love, right? You know, if you do this in a love relationship, uh, you know, I want that and so forth. So is that even possible, uh, Neil? Can you have a conditional love in an adult human relationship? In my experience, it is possible, and there are people on the earth, we talked about a couple of them a few minutes ago, who demonstrate that every day of their life. And there are other people from history, we know from our past, who also demonstrated it in their life for other human beings. 
So we, we have heard about people, and not just one or two, but a whole slew of people. Do you believe everyone can do this? I mean, can every man and woman love each other unconditionally, you think? You know? Yes, of course, of course we can. We simply have to decide to. We have to, and making that decision may not be easy because we're so young. Let, let's, let's put this into the right context. You're really asking a question with regard to whether it's possible for a primitive species. And I don't use the word primitive pejoratively as a negative. It's just a statement of fact. We're very young, young species. We're like the children of the universe. And so you'd like to, would you expect a three-year-old child or a five-year-old boy to, you know, to somehow respond with the same ethical construction of a 50-year-old man? Probably not. Although, although in some cases, in some cases, a three or a five-year-old child would have even a higher sense of, uh, yes, of what is right and wrong, or what is joyful and what is happy and what is loving, because maybe a five-year-old child would never do what a 50-year-old man would do. But let's talk about how young we are as a species. Give me 10 seconds to describe this. There was a wonderful book written a few years ago in which the following paragraph was, was, was it contained. In that book, the authors said, take the age of the Earth and overlay it on a calendar year. Let's pretend that the Earth was born on January 1st and that we are now on the, you know, toward the end of December of 2020. And, and let's take a look at, let's call that the total age of the Earth. If we use that as our scale, simply to bring it down something, uh, bring it down to a level we can actually hold in our head, on that scale, the human, the, 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 the first form of life, any kind of life, appeared on this planet in the month uh, of uh, February. The, the advanced forms of life did not appear on this planet until November on that scale of that year. Dinosaurs did not uh, appear on this planet until uh, December the 5th on that year and did not disappear until December 25th on that scale. The entirety of human history Everything we've recorded in human history took place in the last 60 seconds of the year. That's how young we are as a species compared to the age of the Earth. Forget about the age of the cosmos. And so we see how we are very primitive, beginning beings, just ch children of the universe. And that's why we're acting the way we're acting. And that's why we are behaving the way we are behaving. And that's why we have found it so difficult so far to love each other without condition of, of one adult to another adult. But I'm telling you this, we're, we're, are, we're expanding in our evolutionary process exponentially. We are growing very quickly, not in a one, two, three, four progression, but in a two, four, eight, 16, 32 progression to the point where we are getting to the place now where yes, many human beings and soon all human beings will be able to love each other without condition, without needing anything back, without requiring anything from another, able to say, I love you, and I don't need you to show me or give me anything in return right. for the love that I am giving you. The way we love, by the way, we already, I, I noticed you couched your statement, can we love another adult person in that way? We already love our children, hopefully that way. Yeah, unconditionally, usually. And when you hold a, 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 a three-week-old three baby in your arms, you, you, you've, you, we've experienced that love, holding that three-week-old baby in our arms and just seeing its utter perfection. And you know what? Right. We're dressed in our finest clothes. 
we're at the christening, we're holding the baby in our arms, and the three-week-old baby has an unfortunate biological accident. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and do we say to the three-year-old baby who had this unfortunate biological accident all over our beautiful clothes, do we say, what's the matter with you? <laughs> you or do we even forgive the baby? Forgiveness is not even a part of the equation. Exactly. We simply understand how a perfect picture of innocence could have such an experience. I want to say that that's how God loves us. Yes. I was going to say that you actually have a very interesting, some people say almost a controversial view on forgiveness. And you say that God does not forgive because he doesn't, God doesn't need to forgive because, first of all, God doesn't take it personally. And number two, he's, uh, God sees us as a, like a four-year-old child, uh, spiritually speaking. And I often have the example of there's no need to feel regret because when you did that action, you were maybe in, in kindergarten in a certain way psychologically. But when you're in college, you're not going to make those same mistakes. Uh, you can only act at the level you're at at the time. And you're saying that God understands this and you say understanding replaces uh, punishment or, or the need for forgiveness. And the idea is that you're saying that God uh, doesn't need to punish or, or forgive because it under, uh, God understands. And I think you mentioned a little, uh, little girl that spills uh, milk on grandpa because she wants to give it to the pie and then she cries. So you say only a cruel grandpa would get angry or even forgive her because he would try to console her instead. So that's how you see God in that way, that God understands our spiritual level. You quoted me exactly. I have nothing to add. You oh. actually read the book to me. Okay. That's, ex that, that's exactly right. And I would like to think that God is at least as nice as my grandpa. Well, there's some mean because grandpas out there, though. You know that show? Well, well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I of course, there are some mean grandpas <laughs> out there. But the point being that that, that God is, is, is not needing, because you cannot injure, hurt, anger, disappoint, or frustrate God at any level for a very simple reason. Because God needs nothing from us or from anybody else. How can the source of everything need anything, much less his ego salved mm. by us obeying, you know, his commandments? Right. So imagine that we would command, a, here we go again, a three-week-old or a three-month-old or even a three-year-old child. We wouldn't command a three-year-old. You would simply love a three-year-old. And if the three-year-old made a mistake, you would actually comfort that child in the moment of their so-called transgression and say to that child, there, there, sweetheart, sweetheart, don't cry. Don't cry. It's okay. I love you. Exactly. Now, anyway, here's a couple of things. Now, you say God doesn't need to forgive or do doesn't forgive. We also say we don't need you to forgive ourselves or others. Because you say the soul is beyond the need for forgiveness, even though the mind and heart, I mean, could be hurt. But, so there's no real need to forgive uh, when you hurt yourself. Although, you know, there is something called self-compassion. You've heard of the phrase, uh, self-compassion is a new self-esteem. But you're saying that you can actually repeat negative cycles if you keep forgiving yourself and keep doing the same thing. Uh, and the idea of forgiving others, uh, you're, again, your soul can't be damaged. So that's kind of a very novel way of looking at it. So well, the soul, if the soul is an individuation of divinity, yes. it may be a novel way of looking at it, but it's an accurate way to look at it. Yes. So if, if the soul, of course, is not an individuation of divinity, then the whole discussion is, is closed. Yes. 
the conversation is over because everything that's in the book, The God Solution, and for that matter, in the Conversations with God series, everything that you find in those books is based on the fundamental uh, understanding that each of us is an individuation of divinity, not God in total, but as a wave is to the ocean and arising from the ocean. When the wave arises from the ocean in the middle of the Atlantic, it's not separate from the ocean. It's not something other than the ocean. So it is simply the ocean. the ocean in an individual expression. And when that expression, as beautiful and as glorious and as powerful as it is, when that expression is complete, the wave recedes back into the ocean whence it came. And that's a metaphor that describes, in my understanding and in my awareness, our relationship to the divine. Right. But the other thing, so, so God doesn't forgive. We don't need to forgive ourselves or others. And you say, we don't need to ask for forgiveness to others because, again, their soul you know, can't be hurt. But some people say, well, but then you're going to hurt people. That's, that's not a good thing to do. But you say that a loving person would not do that. So how does that work? Uh, you say at a, at a lower level, spiritually, forgiveness can be useful dealing with your feelings or resentment or hurt. So you think that there's a certain place for forgiveness at a certain human level. But should we ask for forgiveness for those who we have hurt? Everything depends on our understanding of another person's level of development. So to give you an answer, a direct answer to your question, if I was in the room with Byron Katie as an example, hmm. I would not ask her for ask her forgiveness if I somehow didn't invite her to my party or somehow slighted her or I think I damaged her in some way because I know Byron Katie well enough to know that nothing like that would ever even bother her, injure her, upset her, disappoint her, anger her, frustrate her. She would not have any of those emotional responses. Well, she's very sensitive. Well, she's one of the feeling personalities that take everything personally. So that's, why I asked, that's why I answered your question in the way I did. The answer to your question is, is it useful to perhaps offer, ask someone for forgiveness? It would depend on my reading of their spiritual, psychological, and emotional development. I wouldn't ask Byron Katie for her forgiveness because she would smile at me and she'd say, sweetheart, sweetheart, there's nothing to forgive you for. You can't hurt me or injure me in any way right. by anything you would do. However, if I assessed that the person across the room was not at that level of emotional or spiritual development, I might say to them, I experienced that I've done something that may have hurt you or may have injured you or may have frustrated or angered you or disappointed you. Would that be true? And I'm talking about the time that I didn't invite you to my party or the time that I did such and such or so and so. Am I reading that correct? Do you feel uh, have bad feelings about that? If they said yes, I don't, I don't, I'm not happy about that at all. You're absolutely right. I think you owe me an apology. <laughs> so I'm thinking of your wife, for example. Would you say that to your wife? Well, if she's mad at you, would you say, I'm sorry, honey? <laughs> yes. You would? Okay. Because husband and wives, you know, there's always this issue with, uh, you know, I'm yes. Sorry. But but I can tell you this as well, that happens so seldom oh. um, between my wife and I, because we understand exactly what I'm talking to you about here. Right. My wife doesn't become offended by small slights or, or, or tiny little infractions. But you know, a lot of people they, do, though. A lot of, oh, yeah. of course they do. That's the point we're making here. So, so because we're all very young, and that is we are spiritually young. 
Yes. We are very, we, we are the children of the universe, I repeat. And, and so we are just now growing into the place where we can become aware and conscious of who we really are and what that really means when we overlay who we are upon our own day-to-day -day behaviors. It's pretty powerful. So at a beginning spiritual level, you might ask for forgiveness, but if they're at a higher level, you don't need to ask it because they don't take it personally. Is that what you're saying? I, I'm, I'm saying that I would not even think about asking forgiveness from the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. Spiritually evolved person. Yeah. He's, he's, way, he's way past the need for that. Yes. So it depends if they're touchy people that are easily hurt. You know. And you know, I, I think there's a place for forgiveness as a stepping stone. I think it's a first, it's kind of like a, an early rule or an early tool that can be used by humans as they are developing into their fullness and moving into the grandness of who they really are. So I do think that it's a, a valuable tool that can be used between people who are functioning at, a, at, a, a, at an elementary level. But I, I don't, but I think understanding replaces forgiveness. I, I'm not saying we should be brash or totally ignore uh, uh, what we have said or done to another person or what they have said or done to us. But I think understanding replaces forgiveness in the mind of the master. Therefore, we would do what understanding would invite us to do. I like that. I often say that love is a deep understanding of another. You know, almost, you know, like uh, an acceptance, appreciation of the other person. You know, a deep empathy. And therefore, we would not simply ignore what we have done to them or what they've done to us. Right. We would simply do what understanding would invite us to do. That's it may call upon us to say, you know what? I, uh, we may not ask them uh, for their forgiveness, but we may say to them, I understand how what I've done might or could have hurt you. Okay. And certainly might, might or could have hurt another. I understand how that could be possible. Yeah. Very I, I want you to know that I regret. Yes. I, re I regret sending that energy your way, and I hope that you have not been injured by it. Yeah. And I, I hope that you, you hear. You have a very compassionate sound, you. you have a very compassionate sounding voice. I can see the the lovely energy coming from you as you say this. And I would and I would say I hope that you not only were not injured or hurt by what I did, but I hope that you can hear me when I say I love you, and I would never intentionally purposefully yes. hurt or harm you in any way Very beautiful. because I love you, sweetheart. Wow. I, I love you. I hope your wife is listening to this right now. Is she in the back somewhere? Or? No. <laughs> no, she's not, but she's always in my mind. <laughs> okay. Now, now, Neil, what I like about this stuff is, I mean, the book is fairly simply, you know, it's a sh shorter book, but it's got a lot of, packs a lot of power, you know, those, those, those little messages and nuggets. And you talk about, you looked at the literature of um, positive thinking, you know, the cognitive psychology, change your thought, change your, you know, life. You know, Wayne Dwyer, Napoleon Hill, thinking grow rich. But you said that's not enough because to get to a more powerful state, you need to get to the feeling state, which you say is thought and motion. We had Ariel Ford on our show, um, which is a great author, spiritual author, and she writes about feelingization, that when you want to attract a soulmate, you kind of feel as if they're already with you. And that propels you to meet them. And she said this guy went to a wedding party and they said, how many people? He said two, even though he was alone, because he envisioned he was there with his soulmate. And actually he felt the joy and the feeling and the love. And, and he met her pretty much soon after that. So that's pretty powerful, uh, that idea. And then you say, and then from that, the step two is to take the feeling that you have into upgraded to God's feeling, which is pure love. 
So that's kind of a very interesting, uh, almost an equation you're putting in uh, for us. Is that the way it should work? Yes, I'm inviting people to decide to feel the way they imagine God would feel in any given moment. Even in the moment when someone is seeming to offend or hurt or damage you, how would God feel in that moment? And what would God say? And what would God do? And is it possible for human beings to move into that place? Is it is it too much to ask of the average person? Or is this within reach? Is it, to go back to a question you asked a few moments ago, is this kind of behavior within reach of the average person? Well, we're told, we're told by the world's great teachers that it is. And, and the world's great teachers have told us in so many words, love, love, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and bless those who would harm you. Right. Now, why, why would the world's great teachers, not just one, but almost all the world's great spiritual teachers, yes. have said some version of that? Why would they tell us that if they thought it was outside of the reach of the average human being? Well, are they scam artists? Hmm. Are they telling us to do something that, it's, that they know in the back of their mind is impossible for the average person to do? Right. Or is it possible that there's something that we don't fully understand here? the understanding of which would change everything. Exactly. Because I mean, it, it it's easy to love those who love you, but to love things that are unlovable, for example, sickness, disease, and death. And you say to learn the lesson from that. And then to love your enemies, as you mentioned, bless those who persecute you. Now, there's a striking example in your book, the Buddhists talking about what if these bandits came in and sawed off your limbs with some kind of double-edged saw, you would still wish them universal love. That's an extremely powerful uh, compassion. But could you do that, Neil? Someone's chopping off your beard. I mean, are you going to say, I love you, or what's going to be your feeling? Well, you know, the Buddha, <laughs> the, the Buddha taught, the Buddhists recognized the story you just told as a very famous story. It's, it's, it's the, uh, I'm sorry? That's an extreme example of someone chopping off your limbs. Well, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the analogy of the two-handed saw. And and he Buddha says, if you're attacked on the side of the road and these things happen to you, if you are paying attention to my teachings, you will have not one negative thought in your mind, wow. except a, a, but you'll have a compassionate thought, a thought of compassion for your attackers, that they feel that this is the way they must behave hmm. in order to achieve what they wish to achieve. And only a, a sacred being would have compassion at a moment like that. Not even forgiveness, but compassion, no, which is the height of understanding. I understand that you have been so damaged right. that you feel you. this is the only way that you can behave to achieve what it is you wish to achieve in your life. Yeah, what's hurting you, you said that it makes you want to hurt me. So it's the inner wound. But that's a total empathetic reversal, right? It's 100% you know, putting yourself in that, in that soul. And you mentioned, uh, I think, the Pope, the Pope. It was John Paul, was it the third, that was uh, shot six times by an assassin. And later on, ended up forgiving him, becoming friends, and even pardoning the guy uh, that shot him. And you put that as a very interesting example of that same idea, right? That compassion to love. And uh, even though it's been millions of years we've been here, you don't think that it's going to take more millions to get to that point? Or you think it'll be the um, Pierre de Chardin, you know, the, the Omega point, where we're going to get to this unification yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I think we're making an exponential uh, movement toward uh, that place 
We're moving into 246-1832 progression and expanding our awareness so rapidly and so magnificently. Right. But I think it's only a matter of a very short time when we'll be able to get to the place where we will have compassion for those who seek to injure us. And then ultimately, no one will even seek to injure us because we will have developed a, an entire civilization where we will understand who we really are and how we can best demonstrate that and express that in our day-to-day -day interactions with each other. Yeah, it's almost like the virus, even though it hurt a lot of people, it can be used maybe for positive, right? Because it brings There's people no, together. Exactly. The technology is also exploding. People are now on Zoom every day. So you're reaching millions of, millions of people, right, at one time. So what if love can grow as a virus in a positive way, like, you know, spread? Is that you think that's possible? I don't think there's any question that it's possible. And I think that pure love is, in fact, going to be the state of things on this planet uh, before very long. I don't mean it's 500 years or 300 years or 200 years. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but I think it's going to happen sooner than later. If we allow ourselves to listen to those among us who are telling us what we must do in this physical environment in order to stop the ever-growing degradation of our physical systems, not the least of which are, is our ecology. Definitely. Now, here's one that really catches people by surprise, Neil. You say everything is based on love, even robbery and murder, but it's misguided love. You say if you, you say you love your spouse and someone wants to take the spouse, you might kill that other person out of jealousy or the love, supposedly, for the person. Or if you love a car that you have, um, you know, they'll say, I'll steal your car because I love your car. How do you see that? So everything is based on love, even even. Well, the every act, yes, the book makes the point that every act is an act of love, and you cannot point to an act hmm. that was committed by anybody in history or in our present time that is not an act of love. Even the greatest uh, tyrannies, you know, horrible killings in the world. Every every act is an act of love. Human beings do what they do because of something they love, and they love it so much that they're willing to do whatever they're doing now. Right. in order to protect it or not lose it or get it back. Addiction, maybe, you know, they call so, it. So every act is an act of love. And when we understand that, right. then we're clear that we simply haven't learned how to love Probably. in a way that we would like to be loved. Hmm. So we've ignored completely the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have it done unto you. You see, the platform that, rule that was supposed better. to be the gold standard, but it has not become the gold standard. Even after all of these hundreds and hundreds of years, we have not learned to do that, but we are getting there. Right. Or you say do unto others as they want you to do unto them, which is called the platinum rule. How is that? Is that different? It, 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 it expands our understanding. The platinum rule, platinum being more valuable than gold, uh, is an expansion of the understanding. Do unto others as they would have it done unto them, hmm. allows us to experience that we are them. It is a way for us to experience our oneness with them. The biggest challenge in the world today is that we've created this experience of us and them. We're over here and they're over there. We're white, they're black. We're black, they're white. We're gay, they're straight. We're straight, they're gay. We're male, they're female. They're conservative, they're liberal. 
we're this nationality, they're that nationality. We see our differences, and suddenly we've allowed our differences to create incredible separation and alienation, a level of alienation I've not seen in my lifetime on this planet. But we are now coming to the place where we are seeing what we're doing to ourselves. And we are now able to say, you know, do unto others what they would have done unto them because we are them. They're simply another version of us. But in the end, we're all one. All people are one person. All things are one thing. There's only one thing. And all things are part of the one thing there is. So when I can look across the room and see a person who holds a different point of view from me, I can still see that person as an aspect of who I am. Yes. And it wouldn't stop me from being kind to them, even if they are, as an example, a republic. Repo I can't say the word. A member of that other party. Okay. Well, how about this, Neil? <laughs> you came out. Now, just, this, just having fun, folks. It's, are, okay. Yeah. The, it's okay if you're a Republican. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, 50 50, you know. But uh, you're saying so identification with the certain things creates division, which creates a lack of love and alienation. Yes. Alienation. We also say, even with objects, for example, you're talking about uh, cars and clothes and money, you can also have a, almost a loving connection in a certain way. And I talk about loving money energy. So you do something you love to do for work and then you receive this thing called money and then you take that and buy goods and services from others and show appreciation and love for what they give you. So it can be a, a circular flow of love. But there are people that become so-called addicted to uh, money or you know uh, material objects, almost like they worship as a, as a god in a way. So how do you find uh, draw a line between those two things? You know, having love for everything you have in life but you know not being consumed by it. I ask yourself a simple question. <laughs> when I'm on my deathbed, how important will this be? Yes. My mother used to invite me to, to look at a, a question similar to that when I was a young man. Yes. I would get frustrated about something or another, and my mother would say, sweetheart, sweetheart, when you're 95 years old, sitting on the front porch, should you live that long, and you're sitting in your rocking chair considering this moment, no. how important do you think this will be? Okay. And if you don't think this is going to be... Your grandmother said that to you. Was it your grandmother or your mother? No, that was my mom. Wow. And she said, how, how important do you think this is going to be? And I would think about that. She said, if you don't think this is going to be important hmm. when you're sitting on that front porch at 95, don't make it important now. Hmm. Whether it's the car that you adore or the computer that you think is the most wonderful thing in your life or whatever else you have idolized or whatever other person, place, or thing that you think you can't live without, you know, and I, I have to tell you something. I've experienced having lost everything. Hmm. I've experienced two fires in my life when I lost everything in my house. Wow. Not once, but twice as it happens. Wow. And I also experienced, as you know from my history, living on the sidewalk for a year wow. without anything at all. Not a nickel in my pocket and no house to live in. No way to get under a roof. No way to get out of the uh, severe cold. You know, I did have a tent so I could get out of the rain, but that was about it. And I was, you know, living that way for a year, walking the streets. When you've walked the streets for a year with your hand out, asking a person, might you have a quarter or a half dollar? A lot, a lot maybe, of reduction, a lot of negative activity. Or maybe even some folding money that you could put in my hand. Kind of you do that for a year. Wow. 
And then if you get back into life in the way you're describing, where you get up and you do something and you get a little money for it, and you go out and you spend your money and give it to somebody else as appreciation for what they're doing, you find it very difficult to get caught up in the lifestyle you're describing, where you suddenly start making things, physical objects in your life so important that they become your God. It doesn't happen anymore. So it's about recontextualization. It's about deciding who you really are and why you're really here. Alex, there are four questions in life that I want to leave you with here. Four questions that I invite everybody to ask themselves each morning when you arise and each evening before you retire. Look at yourself in the bathroom mirror and ask yourself these four questions. Number one, who am I? Number two, where am I? What is this place? I don't mean what room of the house or what, what city or what state or what country. I mean, what is this place of physicality that I'm in? Where am I? Number three, why am I where I am? Why am I here? What's the point of all this? And number four, what do I intend to do about that? I ask myself those questions every morning of my life. Who am I? Where am I? Why am I where I am? What do I intend to do about that? And I ask myself those four questions every night before I retire. It contextualizes my life and places it into a container that I can, allows me to hold the totality of my experience and see it in a dramatically different way than I did a few years ago. And then the reduction of all that, I believe, is love, because love is the only thing you can take with you. When there's a plane crash, that's the only thing that you have with you. And one of the highest forms is gratitude. And I think you kind of culminate your book with this idea, is having the gratitude to God for everything that you have. And you mentioned something I didn't know about you, that you had a heart problem a while back, and you actually ended up having a quintuple heart bypass surgery. I think you said 90% blocked in, in, in a part of it. And then they're willing you in to possibly your death, right? You're going into surgery. And you said, I'm grateful if I stay. I mean, I'm still alive. But even if I go, I'll be with God. And you felt joy. And that's an amazing experience to have. Well, you know what? I was in a no-lose situation. You're right. I had a quintuple bypass. That's amazing. Yeah. And they were telling me, that the surgeons were saying, we had two arteries in there that were almost 90% blocked. You were living on borrowed time. No question about it. And But I knew as they were wheeling me into the operating suite, I remember having the thought, I'm lying there on the gurney. You know, I can hear the wheels and I'm, I'm going into the surgery. And in a moment, they're going to say, count backward from 10 and I'm going to get to around nine and I'm out. Yeah. But I remember thinking as they were wheeling me in, you know, God, I can't lose here. I either come out of this and I'm healed and I'm doing well or I don't or I die and I'm coming home to you. Either way, it's okay. And that's been, by the way, my poem of the day since that time. Either way, it's okay. Whenever I face any kind of crossroad, whenever I face any kind of event in my life, positive or what I used to call negative, I move into that place. Once you've been through open heart surgery, you can get to a whole different state of mind. And you, I just say to, I say to myself, you know what? Either way, it's okay. That's what I say. I like this. Beautiful. It's very poetic. That's like saying you choose gratitude instead of fear, love instead of despair, right? So you've chosen love. Again, it's wonderful to have you on the show. It's been a great pleasure and a joy. I mean, you really bring great love to everything that you do with us every time you come. You're very kind to say those things, Alex. Thank you for those nice words. I appreciate it. Where can we learn more about it? I know you have a lot of books and you have a website, anything you're working on that you want people to know about here. 
just, you know, if, if they feel inspired to do so, they might find it interesting to pick up a copy of The God Solution. Yeah, right here. Yeah, there, there you are. And, you know, that's, I would invite them to do that if they chose to, because I think it would really help people to embrace a whole different perspective about life, about themselves, and about God. Until next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila, Love University. You can reach us at loveuniversity.love. Call us at 310-226-8090. If you have questions for Neil about the show and you want to learn more about this beautiful topic, please let us know. Until next time, put away your notebooks, your iPads, and go out and this week have love. Choose love as your solution, God's solution, and your solution as well. Dr. Alex Avila. That was a great interview with Neil Donald Walsh, best-selling mega author of Consciousness with God, a very spiritual messenger. So the idea that God is love, but not just love, but pure love, and that pure love is unconditional love, and that's something that we can express to everyone that we meet and do everything that we do can be manifested with spiritual, pure love. So again, next time, this is Dr. Alex Avina. Put away your notebooks, your iPads, your phones. If you want to reach us, you can reach us at 310-226-8090. Visit us at loveuniversity.love. Write to us at loveuniversitylove at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Love University Podcast. Like us on Twitter, Instagram at Love Letter U Podcast. Subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Until next time, go out there and have a loving energy week. Extend love without expectation. This is Dr. Avila. 